1973, J.I. Packer wrote his well-known book, Knowing God, in which he said, and I quote, modern muddle-headedness and confusion as to the meaning of faith in God is almost beyond description. Men say they believe in God, but they have no idea who it is that they believe in or what difference believing in him makes. So the Christian who wants to help his floundering fellows into what a famous track once called safety, certainty, and enjoyment is constantly bewildered as to where to begin. The fantastic hodgepodge fantasies regarding God that confronts him quite literally takes his breath away. How on earth have people gotten themselves into such muddle-headedness? That was 1973. I'd be fascinated to hear what Packer would say today. Just think about some of the orientations people have towards God in our current culture. For starters, number one, people now more than ever follow their own thinking about religion rather than trusting the word of God. So we have the responsibility to declare what the Bible actually says, especially when it comes to who God is. Because number two, people think all religions are equal. Therefore, that they have no distinction. That's why so many say all roads lead to God. But they don't. So we have to help them understand the exclusivity and the finality of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Number three, people have ceased to recognize the seriousness of sin, which causes them to think God's infinitely forbearing and kind and not interested in justice or in judgment at all. Packer calls it the doctrine of the celestial Santa Claus. So sin creates no problem. The cross has no meaning. And his atonement, his role as our mediator interceding for us, is not really needed at all. Because God's favor extends just as quickly and extensively to those who reject God as to those who know God, love God, obey God, and live for the glory of God. Which is why when you tell people that you are a Christian, they say, I'm glad to hear that works for you. Now, just think about that. I'm glad to hear that works for you. Do you hear how that's a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is? Because it turns God into some sort of genie in a bottle who you can use and manipulate whenever you need God to do something for you. I'm glad to hear that works for you. Rather than seeing God as the all-knowing, all-powerful God that he is, who will absolutely judge the wicked, but who is also slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But he's only abounding in steadfast love to those who repent and believe in his promised son his appointed priest, his confirmed prophet and anointed judge who serves as the one true mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who promises to deliver God's people from their enemies and restore them to God's favor, providing everlasting peace. That salvation's only available in Jesus. 
So it's obvious, isn't it, that in our current culture saturated with self-thinking, self-help, and self-generated truth, we must turn to the Bible and let the Bible instruct us on who God really is, including his judgment of the wicked and his glorious offer of mercy to those who trust and believe in the one true mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus which our passage this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7, so clearly points forward to. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. If you're opening your Bible, just want to encourage you to grab my outline, put it right there in your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 4, page 225, if you're using the Bible in the chair in front of you. Three points to my sermon this morning, rejection of God, supremacy of God, and the mercy of God. As you're turning, I want to remind you of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, specifically verses 6 to 10, because Hannah declared the Lord kills, but he also brings life. The Lord brings down to Sheol, but he also raises up. The Lord makes poor, but also rich. The Lord brings low, but he also exalts. Verse 9, the Lord guards the feet of the faithful, but the wicked are cut off in darkness. And we've seen that already as we've kicked off 1 Samuel. Eli's wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are being brought low. In fact, God promises they will both die on the same day, and God is raising up Samuel. So Samuel's already the promised son, appointed priest and confirmed prophet, So God is exalting the lowly Samuel, whose mom brings him a new ephod every year so he can minister before the Lord. And God confirms him as a prophet, even having him speak the truth of God's word as a boy to the 90-year-old Eli, pronouncing God's judgment on him and on his two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. So God clearly brings down, but God also raises up. Because God is the divine king who rules and reigns over all people, who brings victories and also brings defeat. This is number one, the rejection of God, and A, the fallacy of God's people. Follow along as I read 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. At times I'm going to interject and make comments, but we're moving through that section right now. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now that's the right question to ask. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines because they're rightly understanding God rules and God reigns over all things, including this war against the Philistines. Unfortunately, they reached the wrong conclusion because if they would have listened to their Bibles, Deuteronomy 28, they would have known that if you do not obey the voice of the Lord or keep his commandments, then the Lord will cause you to be defeated by your enemies. So the issue is a sin issue not a God issue. It's a heart issue, not a logistics issue. So they misunderstand who God is, and therefore they try to manipulate him into fixing their problems. Look at what it says, verse 3. Let us bring the ark 
of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Verse 5, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they heard the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. It's obvious the Philistines misunderstand who God is. But do you see how the Israelites are trying to manipulate God? Because their assumption is, if we can just bring the Ark of the Covenant into the camp, so the the four foot by two foot by two foot gold cover box that contains the Ten Commandments, if we just bring that box up to the battle, so essentially God in a box rather than a genie in a bottle, then God will somehow be obligated, manipulated to deliver us from our enemies and conquer the Philistines. Now, I'm not sure. If you've seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But that's exactly what that movie is all about. Because the Ark is described as a source of unrivaled power that that Hitler and the Nazis so desperately want to use for themselves. So if they're just able to get it first before the Americans, then the Ark will be used as a weapon of mass destruction. Because as we're told earlier in the movie... An army which carries the ark into battle is invincible. The rest of the movie plays that out with the grand finale being the opening of the ark and the power of God wiping out all the people who even look at it. Which is exactly what the Israelites are thinking here. But they're horribly wrong. Because God cannot be controlled and God cannot be manipulated. Which doesn't mean that that God is vindictive or out of control, but instead calls his people to own their sin, repent of their wickedness, and worship him exclusively. Not for what they can get him to do, but for who he is and what he's accomplished and the salvation that's only available in and through him. Are you seeing, A, the fallacy of God's people? They're trying to manipulate God, use God for their own outcomes rather than worshiping God for who he is. How does it go for them? Well, verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a great Slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. What's the takeaway? Is it not to understand that if we operate like this, then our concern is not to seek God, but to control God, to manipulate God? It's to use God to further our own personal agendas rather than 
worshiping God for who he is and who he's revealed himself to be, the creator and the sustainer of the world who rules and reigns over all things and all peoples. So to do so is to prefer religious manipulation over personal holiness. Because we're more interested in our own success than the glory of God and rejoicing in the God of the Bible. And please don't miss the irony in verses 1 to 11, because Israel so clearly brings the ark to secure their victory. But God uses it to bring about be the fulfillment of his promise. Because back in chapter 2, verse 34, God declared to Eli that because of their wickedness and Eli's refusal to confront it, both Hopni and Phinehas are going to die. How are they going to die? Chapter 2, 34, it tells us they're going to die by the sword of man on the same day, which is exactly what happens. Be the fulfillment of God's promise. Verses 12 to 18, follow along. Man of Benjamin ran from the battle. And came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. So this guy runs 22 miles in sackcloth and ashes with the news of Israel's defeat. Verse 13, when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. Soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. I'm not trying to be grotesque here in any way, but you have to notice these details. Eli's neck is broken. So his head is snapped or crushed. Why is that? Well, because it's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent, meaning Eli was not a man of God. So yes, he was a priest. Yes, he was doing all sorts of spiritual things. But that doesn't automatically put you in a right relationship with God. Don't you see? That's man's thinking. Not God's thinking, because the only way to be right with God is to recognize him for who he is, to repent of your sins and to believe in the salvation that only he can provide and to demonstrate that by living rightly, living godly before him, which Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas did not do. So what's the result? They're judged by God. And they receive the rightful consequences for their actions, for their sins. Because that's who God is. God is a just judge who is not to be trifled with. 
So be the fulfillment of God's promise and see the tragedy of God's departure. Look at verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. When she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So what do we learn in 1 Samuel chapter 4? Well, we learn that God cannot be controlled. He's not some sort of genie in a bottle who you can pull out and manipulate whenever you need him to do something for you. Like some sort of lucky rabbit's foot to make sure that you're successful on this side of heaven. But instead, God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful, and he is all places He sees all things, he knows all things, and he will absolutely judge the wicked. So we need to be warned this morning, because if you decide to deny the God of the Bible or reject the God of the Bible, then the God of the Bible is going to deny you, and it's going to reject you, rightly, because you've sinned against the God of the Bible. He's absolutely right and just to do so, to judge the wicked, both those who appear to be the people of God and those who are clearly his enemies. Number two, the supremacy of God. Follow along as I read 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 to 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon, and they put him back in his place. When they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon, do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now, how awesome is this? This is such a great story, right? The Philistines obviously think their victory over the Israelites means that their God, Dagon, is more powerful, more capable, more forceful, impressive, influential, and superior to Yahweh, the God of Israel. So what do they do? They bring the Ark of the Covenant into the house of Dagon and they set it before their far more powerful God. But when they come back the next day, Dagon is bowing down, if you will, before Yahweh, the God of Israel. And look and think just how humiliating that statement is in verse 3. That you have to say about your seemingly all-powerful God. So they took Dagon and they picked him up. And they put him back in his place. I mean, what kind of God is that? That you have to pick him up, dust him off, and you have to put him all back together again. And it doesn't just happen once, does it? No, it happens twice. 
And the second time, both his hands and his head are completely knocked off. So only the stump of his body is left. What is the point? Well, obviously to teach the Philistines, A, the supremacy of Yahweh over Dagon. But it's far more specific than that, isn't it? Because he's on the ground now without any arms or legs. So you have to see this as the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. God crushing the seed of the serpent to such an extent that on your belly you shall go, Dagon, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Clearly pointing forward to the Lord Jesus, to God alone, crushing our ultimate enemies of sin, death, and the devil. Because notice, God is currently in enemy territory and Israel is nowhere to be found, right? There's no Samuel here. There's no Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. There's no Joseph or Moses or David. No, there's just God. So what we're seeing here is the supremacy of God alone. That he rules and he reigns over all people. And he alone will crush the seed of the serpent, whatever form it takes. So Yahweh is not worthy to be compared with any other God. Certainly not Dagon, who is helpless, lifeless, and limited, having no power, blind, mute, deaf, and dumb, created and unable to even lift himself up. Whereas we see God to be all-knowing, all-powerful in all places and reigns supreme over all people. That's the God of the Bible. And he's not to be trifled with. As the Philistines will soon see, be the severity of Yahweh. Look at verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy, against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand, whose hand? God's hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines, and they said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought to Gath. (laughs) So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of that city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now, what's really helpful to know here is that the Philistines have five ruling cities. And the ark has already been to three of those cities, right? Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron. 
And in every city, the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people. So yes, in one way, the ark has fallen into the hands of the Philistines. And yet in a totally other way, really, they've fallen into the hands of Yahweh. And I want you to notice how the language is identical to what happened back in Egypt, Exodus 7 to 11. In fact, some commentators liken it to the bubonic plague with rats, infections, tumors, inflammation of the lymphatic system, and horrible Horrible death. And what kind of duration are we talking about here? Well, look at 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. It says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. When the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send to it, it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him as a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors, five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors, that sounds fun, and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and your gods and your land. Grab a hold of their clarity. Do you see their clarity? Right? They, they understand that wherever the ark goes, there's plague and panic. There's dismay and there's death. So they're crystal clear They need to send this thing back to the Israelites. But they also understand that they have to do so by making guilt offerings. Now, why in the world would they know that? Why would they know that they need to make guilt offerings? Because they're guilty, right? So they've obviously sinned against the one true God of the Bible who actually now they know exists and has proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that he's real, that he's powerful, and that he's potent. Chapter 6, verse 5. So you must make images of your tumors and your mice in order to do what? To give glory to the God of Israel. And as a result, perhaps he will lighten his hand of punishment. Do you see how clear they are? But just to confirm that this is truly the work of Yahweh, the God of Israel, they make up this plan. So this test in verses 6 to 12, where they have two cows that have never been yoked before, so never pulled a cart, be hooked up to a wagon with the Ark of the Covenant and all the offerings on it. And then they they set these two cows and this, this wagon, they set it totally loose to go wherever they desire to go. And if it heads towards one of the Philistine cities, then this whole thing, this, this panic and this plague, this dismay and this death is all just one big massive coincidence. But if the cows go straight to Beth Shemesh, the closest city in Israel, then it's settled. Yahweh is the one who inflicted the pain, the panic, and the plague, who really does rule and reign supreme over all other so-called gods of the world. And I want you to see just how clear the text is. Look at verse 12, chapter 6, verse 12. The cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went, and they turned neither to the right 
nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them. Why did they go after them? Just to confirm it. So they went as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So there's no doubt, right? Yahweh is who he says he is. He rules and he reigns supreme over all things. He's the creator and sustainer God who must be worshiped, who must be adored, who must be praised, who must be honored. Yet what do the Philistines do? Nothing. Nothing. They're just glad that the ark is gone. And they're just glad that there's no more death. But just think about that. Because Yahweh just stooped down to show them in terms that they could totally understand that he is real and that he is worthy to be praised. But as soon as the fear is alleviated, their minds are no wiser and their hearts are no softer. For all we know, they're pulling out the glue to put Dagon back together again. And then they're going to worship this dead, dull, inanimate object who's a figment of their own imagination and creation. Do you see that? God made himself known to them. And yet after seeing and recognizing this is Yahweh, this is the God of the Bible, who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, As soon as the tension is gone, out of sight, out of mind. I'm just going to go back and do the things that I've always done. God revealed himself. They saw him. And yet they made the conscious decision to deny him, reject him, and walk away from him. Are you seeing that in our text? That's what's happening. Oh, I want you to see that. So often I think we treat God like that. Out of sight, out of mind. So even though he becomes so evident and so obvious to us during certain seasons of our lives, when we know he's real, he's powerful, he's potent, he's worthy of all of our worship, honor, and praise, we then just decide to move on to other things. You need to understand if you choose to move on to other things, to not think you're just neutral with God, that would be to reject God and deny him for who he is. Obviously, the Philistines reject him. They see him, but they deny him, and they reject him, and they move on to other things. But surely, right? Surely, at this point, the Israelites will see him rightly and will worship him now that the ark is back in Israel. Not without a mediator, they won't. Because after the ark rolls back into town, Joshua of Beth Shemesh splits the wood of the cart and offers the cows as a burnt offering. But others, other men, do not do so. They don't honor God. They don't revere God. They don't respond rightly to God. So we're told, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, that God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. 
So he struck 70 men and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Notice the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Bethlehem has said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall we go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Chapter 7, verse 1, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed. Notice, one verse tells us some 20 years passed and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now let me answer this question. Why in the world did God strike down these 70 men? Well, one of two things happened. Verse 19 says, that's the, that's the verse that we have to focus in on. Verse 19 says, the men looked upon the ark which could mean they lifted the lid and they looked inside, which would have been a clear violation of the sanctity of the ark according to Numbers chapter 4, which says, you shall not look on the holy things even for a moment, for in the moment that you look upon them, you will surely die. That could have happened. Or they looked in such a way that there was in, it was in clear contrast to those who were rejoicing in the return of God. Meaning they looked with total indifference that the ark was back in Israel. So either they're disobeying or they're disregarding. Either way, there's a problem, right? Because either the people of God are, are knowingly disobeying the Lord God. Or they're indifferent to the Lord their God. I would suggest either way is instructive to us this morning because we do not want to be a people who do either. We don't want to blow off the Lord our God and disobey him, and we certainly shouldn't be indifferent to the Lord our God, ask, acting as if it doesn't matter how we respond to him this morning. You know, Tim Keller once said, when the Bible talks about sin, it's not just referring to the bad things we do. It's not just our lying or our lust or our anger or our immorality. Instead, it's ignoring God in the world that God created and rebelling against him by living as if he doesn't exist. So again, either way, we need to know the God of the Bible because he's not to be trifled with. Instead, he rules and reigns over all people, Philistines and Israelites, the good people and the wicked people, men and women, boys and girls, black and white, doesn't matter. He rules and reigns over all people. And the expectation is always the same, that we might worship him for who he is and what he's done and for the salvation he offers that's only available in and through him. So we must respond rightly by not ignoring him in the world that he so clearly created and by obeying him specifically through the commands that are given to us in his word. To do otherwise is to knowingly choose destruction and judgment. So here's a great question. Then what should we do? How do we respond rightly 
Right? We, 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 we see what we're seeing in chapter 4, 5, and 6. We understand that, that God is not to be trifled with, that he rules and he reigns over all things. Right? And, and he cannot be manipulated. He cannot be used. Well, then how should we respond to him rightly? So that we do not, number one, reject God, but instead embrace, number two, the supremacy of God so that we might experience, number three, the mercy of God. Well, 1 Samuel 7 answers that question by showing us the mediator we absolutely need to intercede on our behalf. So if you would, follow along as I read, starting in verse 3. Well, I'll start in verse 1. No, that is verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now notice Samuel is clearly speaking on behalf of God, which is exactly what prophets do. They speak the word of God to the people of God. And what exactly is Samuel saying? He's saying, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. So if you really are, says, returning to the Lord or repenting, right? Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. Then that really needs to look like something, meaning put away your false gods and serve Yahweh, the God of the Bible only. Serve him exclusively with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But as the prophet who speaks for God, Samuel says, if you do this, then God will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines, which, by the way, absolutely happens in verse 10, because God thunders with a mighty sound and throws the Philistines into confusion so that they are defeated that day before Israel. So the prophet is speaking the word and it will come to pass because Samuel is God's prophet. And the people listen to him. Look at verse 5. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. Then they said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God on our behalf for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. Now let me just ask, what exactly is Samuel doing here? Is he not serving as a mediator? Is he not interceding on behalf of the people? Is he not offering up sacrifices as a priest and praying for the people that God might deliver them from their enemies? Verse 8 tells us, And the people said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that the Lord our God might save us. From who? From the hands of our enemies. And look at what happens. Verse 10 as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. 
And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below, below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called it Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Notice, all the days of Samuel. And as a result, verse 14, the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace. Peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. I mean, my goodness, could it be more clear from chapters 4 to 6 that God rules and reigns over all people, Israelites and Philistines? But chapter 7 locks it down that he does so through a mediator, namely through Samuel, who is a prophet confirmed, speaking the word of God to the people of God, which absolutely comes true, promise that if they would serve the Lord with all their hearts, seen in their evident and obvious repentance, putting away their false gods and serving him only, then God would deliver their enemies into their hands. But he's also a priest appointed offering sacrifices and interceding on their behalf, constantly and consistently crying out so that God might do what? That he might save them, which he does because Samuel prayed for them and interceded on their behalf. And Samuel is clearly the anointed judge, ruling and reigning on God's behalf all the days of his life so that there might be restoration and deliverance and that there might be peace the entire time. That's the mercy of God, but it's only experienced through A, the mediator, Samuel. And what I'm trying to suggest is that it so clearly points forward to the mercy of God, experienced ultimately through the one true mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the one true prophet who speaks the word of God most clearly and most accurately. Because he is the word of God, John 1, 1, which says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And everything that Jesus declared came true, including his death, his burial and his resurrection. So we can wholeheartedly trust him when he says, John 3, 16, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is the one true prophet who speaks God's word, but he's also the one true priest who sacrificed himself. I mean, don't you remember what we learned in Hebrews? Hebrews 10, 11, Every priest stands daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered himself as a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty because his sacrifice was acceptable. Why is that? 
Because he's the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Which means he is able to save to the uttermost those who repent and believe in him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. And what's the upshot? Peace. The upshot is peace. Jesus is the one true prince of peace. First, peace between you and God because your relationship is restored and reconciled, but also peace with others, unity and harmony and love for one another. All of that is possible, experiencing the mercy of God only through the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So then, how should we respond? Well, as J.I. Packer puts it, I don't want there to be any modern muddle-headedness or confusion about the God of the Bible. I certainly don't want there to be any modern muddle-headedness or confusion about the reality of judgment or the opportunity of salvation or the meaning of faith or what it actually looks like to be a Christian. Instead, I'm praying for you to have great clarity that God is God and there is no other. And God is a God who judges. So be clear, judgment is coming. Hebrews 9.27 says, first comes death, then comes the judgment. So if you're here and you have no problem saying, I'm with God, but you're not actually believing in Jesus, or you're actually living for the glory of God. By the way, how would you know that? Well, by the consistent pattern of disobedience in your life, just like the Israelites or the Philistines who repeatedly disobeyed God. And for that, they were judged. Now be clear, I'm not saying you can earn your way to God, and I'm certainly not saying you can obey your way into heaven. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that salvation is never alone. Instead, it always demonstrates itself by consistent acts of obedience. So a radically changed life. That's why the Bible explains it as being born again or being a new creature in Christ. Where you joyfully put off the old man and you obediently put on the new man. So if you're here and you've got an unbroken, consistent pattern of disobedience in your life, then you need to be warned. Judgment is coming. God is God and there is no other. It doesn't matter how often you say that I'm with God. I'm with God. I'm with God. If those are your words, but your actions declare a whole other truth altogether, then you need to be warned. I would be so unkind to not warn you and to appeal to you that God is God and there is no other. And God is a God who judges those who declare one thing and live totally disobedient to God or indifferent to God altogether. Oh, I appeal to you. Come to Christ. Allow Christ to be your mediator. Let him speak the truth of God's word into your heart so that you might be Saved. Allow him to sacrifice himself for your salvation so that you might have peace with God for all eternity. I'm appealing to you. Experience the mercy of God. But that mercy of God only comes through the Lord Jesus. There is one mediator between God and men. 
And that's the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a sacrifice for your salvation. And then as a result, I would say to you, live for the glory of God. So not just words, but actions. For if you are truly returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods, which is anything and everything that you're prioritizing and worshiping over God and direct your heart to serve him only, which means that genuine repentance is tangible. It's visible. It's evident and obvious repentance with concrete actions where you consistently and increasingly put sin to death and walk in righteousness. Let me talk to you specifically. Samuel talked to these people specifically. And he said to them, if you are really returning to the Lord, then put away your false gods and worship me and serve me only. So I'm saying to you this morning, what sin is God putting on your mind right now? What false God are you serving? What area in your life do you consistently put over the Lord your God. This text is saying, you need to tear down that high place. And you need to put the Lord Jesus in his rightful place in your life. What sin is God putting on your heart right now and saying, you need to tear down that high place. And you need to worship me only. What idol is consuming your time or your money or your affections? What one thing is challenging to take greater priority over your life than God and the things of God? I appeal to you, tear down those high places, put away those false gods, because you're seeing the God of the Bible more clearly than you ever have before. And he is greater than anything you could ever imagine and better than anything this world could possibly offer. So there's no way you could ever say, I'm a Christian because that works for me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Instead, we need to say, I'm a Christian because the God of the Bible is real. And because the God of the Bible is powerful and is always present because the God of the Bible is the creator and the sustainer of the word, world. And he really does rule and he really does reign over all things. There's no people that he does not rule or reign over. He is worthy, therefore, to be worshipped and adored by every person in every place for all time. Which means he's worthy for you to worship in every place throughout all time because he is God alone and there is no other by God's grace and for God's glory. May we see him rightly this morning for who he is and for all that he has done for us, for the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is one mediator between God and man. 
That's the Lord Jesus. Allow me to pray that we might worship him rightly. Lord, what a joy to see the Lord Jesus so clearly in 1 Samuel chapters 4 to 7. Every single page in the Bible declares the glory of God in the person of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we delight in the reality that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for every mind and every heart that we might see him rightly. Lord, for my friends who are here this morning, who do not see him rightly, who disobey him or disregard him or view him as some sort of lucky rabbit's foot that they can use and manipulate and get the things that they want this side of heaven, Lord, I pray that they would be warned this morning, that they would hear that warning, that they would heed that warning, and that they would put their faith in the Lord Jesus. Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, we know the ongoing battle of sanctification is putting sin to death and walking in righteousness. Give them clarity, courage, and conviction to see the high places that still remain in their lives, that they would be quick to tear them down. That they would recognize they must be torn down. And I pray that they would see that the Lord Jesus is so much greater, so much better, and so much more worthy of our glory, our honor, and our praise. Lord, give us grace that we are a people who serve him only. Lord, do that good work for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.